Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, took his Bible and he took his scissors and a razor and he clipped out parts of the Bible. He created a New Testament of his own, one that most Christians actually wouldn't recognize. It was an 84-page book that represented Jefferson's struggle with his faith and with his doubts in God. He chose each word carefully, focusing on Jesus, but deleting the miracles like the virgin birth, the resurrection to heaven, any of the other healings, or walking on water, or turning water to wine, all that kind of stuff. Instead, Jefferson focused on Jesus as a man, a great moral teacher who expressed truths without the use of supernatural powers, without the use of miracles. So if there was a moral lesson embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived, but the miracle did not. From that, you know, the, 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 for the man with a withered hand, the disabled hand who was healed on the Sabbath, in Jefferson's Bible, it retains the moral about the Sabbath, but the man's hand is left unhealed. And Jefferson's version of the gospel ends with the stone still rolled over in front of Jesus' tomb. He died on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. So many of us may think, well, I would never take a scissors and do that to the Bible. But do we really think that? Are there things that we've stopped believing God for anymore? Maybe we don't take a a literal scissors to the Bible Yet with our human logic, we rationalize, we think, well, some things are just a little bit too far out there, too supernatural, and we end up neutering God and neutering the gospel. When we cut out the miracles like Jefferson did, we are left with a compassionate, wise, weak Jesus because his raw power is gone. He's no longer God. And that's concerning and dangerous. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, He says, there are those who have an outward religion, but they reject the power of God. He says it this way. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he goes on and says, avoid such people. They don't reflect a genuine Jesus. Paul further tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, it's our natural tendency, I think, to explain things away to understand them. We try to reduce God and create him in our own image. And we end up with a God who looks an awful lot like you, talks an awful lot like you, and, and thinks like you and acts like you. And we don't need another Ross. We don't need another Wendy. As awesome as she is, we've got one Wendy and that's good enough, right? We've got one Pat and that's good enough for this world. God makes us all unique for a different purpose. A.W. Tozer said, when we create God in our own image, then he can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, never astonish us or transcend us. And I might add, we have a God who can never do miracles if we do it that way. I want a God who continues to surprise me, a God who continues to astonish me. Our parking lot message a few weeks ago, we talked about this tendency to make God smaller. Uh, like, I, I just feel like it's important for us to reemphasize this point that we would not have Christianity if there had been no miracles. I mean, that, 
That speaks to us today in Jesus' bold statement in John 14. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. I mean, that greater thing is just baffling to us, right? Let's just distill it. If we follow Jesus, we'll be doing the things that he did. We'll be feeding the poor, washing some feet, probably offending some Pharisees along the way. And we will not just be seeing miracles, we will be a part of praying for them and watching God do them through us. God does miracles, but he wants to use us. That's the way he does things. If we keep seeking God, miracles are bound to show up through our lives. This is the truth I want more in my life. I want it to be more in our church. God is a God of miracles, and he calls us to participate, to see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. So today we, we simply want to take a few moments to summarize some of the miracles of Jesus by looking at the book of John. Unlike the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and, and Luke, John does not record that many miracles of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, miracles are also referred to as signs, which means that he's using them as proof or evidence. John selects seven miracles or signs to help reveal more of who God is in Jesus than in what he came to do. So this word sign, again, is helpful for us to understand more of the purpose of the miracles. We shared this a couple weeks, and I'm just going to briefly share it again. Paul Tripp gives an analogy about your family taking a vacation to Disney. You pack your bags, you get on the road to Orlando, and you see a sign that says 120 miles to Disney, and you, you stop, you park right there, you unload everything, you cook your hot dogs, you camp right by that sign, and that's your vacation to Disney, right? I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But that's what we do when we look at miracles and then just stop with them. Miracles are not an end goal. There's so much more to a miracle and a sign. And John expertly draws us through the way he writes into who this sign is pointing toward, Jesus, and what it tells us about Jesus. I love the book of John. It's one of my favorite gospels, uh, writing about the, about the life of Jesus. Uh, John writes it when he's really, really old. He's had a lot of time to, to think about this. He's lived out what Jesus has taught him for many decades now. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Gospels, were already well in circulation among the church by this time. So John, John's goal is not focused on giving a kind of a complete biography of Jesus, but rather his goal in writing is to convey who Jesus is and what he means to us. So John filled his account of Jesus with lots of symbolism and, and just great um, structure and storytelling of, of Jesus' life. For example... The number seven is used a lot in John, in the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life, uh, etc. And, and there's seven women highlighted. There's seven questions Pilate asks. There's seven witnesses that testify of Jesus. And today we're going to focus on the seven miracles that he picked to talk about who Jesus is, to unveil a different dimension of Jesus' power to us through each one of those. So first up is the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. I mean, turning water into wine, it, it, it kind of seems insignificant as an opening miracle, right? Especially when you compare it to the other eyewitness accounts that talk about Jesus casting out demons or healing the leper or something like that. But this miracle is fascinating when you pause with it. It's much more meaningful than some have, knowingly, uh, have, have jokingly said that this is just an instruction on how to have a home winery. The miracle was performed for Jesus' mother and disciples and becomes an anchor to their faith in Jesus. 
The miracle took place at a wedding that Jesus was a part of, the wedding banquet, a celebration was in full swing. The servants suddenly realized they're out of wine, which in that day would have been really embarrassing, but more even more embarrassing, it would have been a public shame on the family. John 2 talks about it this way. It says, when the, water, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I, I, I don't know, but maybe you don't find that humorous. I just find that like a really humorous dialogue going on there. Maybe Jesus' mom is being a little bossy as moms can be, or maybe, maybe she's just you know, lovingly urging Jesus to step out, do what he's called to do. Your time has come. Jesus, you got this. Whatever it is, it goes on and says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. We get the reason why, right? But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of its signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the miracle is not about saving a life. Rather, it just helps a family save face. And I love that. I love that. We have a God who cares about big things and small things. He cares about things that mean something to us which honestly lets us know we can invite God into our everyday lives. He wants to be involved. He knows the number of hairs on your head, and sometimes God just likes to show up and say, I know, I'm aware, I'm present. Even if it's something unbearable or really big, God just wants to say, I want to be part of it. Even if it's not something unbearable, I meant to say. So what else does this sign teach us about Jesus? Throughout the miracles, there's symbolism, but one stands out. The six jars normally held water for ceremonial cleansing. Now, this is a really important Old Testament covenant thing, Old Testament law thing. Here we see Jesus instruct them to fill these jars with water. And somehow in the process, this H2O turns into really fine wine. Wine is used all throughout John and the New Testament as a symbol of the new covenant. <clears throat> it seems that Jesus was using this miracle as a way of teaching his disciples not only of his power, but of the bigger picture of what Jesus was doing. The guests had been drinking the old wine representing the old covenant, and now Jesus has something superior. Jesus is helping them understand what he has come to offer them. The old way of things of relationship with God were changing because Jesus is bringing something even better. Uh, Hebrews puts it really well in chapter 8. It says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, uh, as the old covenant. He mediates as better since it, uh, it's enacted on better promises. New covenant is enacted on better promises. Now the second miracle is John 4. Let's just start reading it. At Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was 
at the point of death. Now, this word official means royal one, meaning this guy is probably connected to a king in some way. Very likely, King Herod, who was under the Roman rule, was the governor of that area at that time, the same Herod who Jesus would go before eventually in a couple years. It would have been a big deal, a really big deal, for this wealthy, influential guy to walk what would have been, what would have been a one-day journey to see this so-called rabbi, Jesus, this no-name carpenter turned public sensation. Why does he come so far and risk his reputation to seek out Jesus? It's because he's desperate. His son is dying. But all of us can relate to this. We get it. If faced with an impossible situation for our kids, there's nothing we wouldn't do. We'd be like him saying, I've done everything I can. I have no place else to turn. It looks impossible. And that's when God steps in. Verse 46. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. At first, this might seem like Jesus is being a little rude. He's just, but he's really just saying the facts. I mean, basically, this guy comes to Jesus, not, not because he believes in him, but because He's heard that he can do some miracles, and he's kind of got a little bit of faith that maybe he could do a miracle. So if the official comes to Jesus, he thinks, Jesus might be able to heal my kid. He's there for the miracle. He's not there for Jesus. And Jesus is saying, unless you see a miracle, you're never going to believe in me. That's just how it is. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, Jesus, you've got to come. You've got to make this day's journey. You've got to come to my home, heal my kid. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. But that's not what he asked for. He wanted Jesus to go with him to his home, to his son. I mean, somewhere this dad had heard that if Jesus kind of comes and puts his hand on him or puts some oil on his forehead or something, that Jesus can, by his presence, make people well. And Jesus doesn't do the miracle that way. Jesus says, I'm not going to come to your house. I'm not going to make the one-day journey. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to just head back home. Your son's going to be okay. I mean, Jesus wasn't demanding a perfect faith from him. He was just wanting him to shift his expectations and take a risk and allow him to do something different. We see this official just take the next step to go back home, back home to his son, hanging on to the faith that Jesus would do what he said. Just can you imagine literally walking out your faith one step at a time. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when that began, he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all of his household. John goes on to say this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So notice how this man's faith progresses. He moved from desperation to belief. He moved from faith in miracles to faith in a miracle worker. He is now a follower of Jesus, not just a miracle follower. Now he's pointing others to Jesus, and his whole household believes. See, miracles always point people to Jesus. So what else does this sign teach us about who Jesus is? Well, above all geographical limitations, he, Jesus is there. He's there with us. There's nothing that can keep him from being wherever you are, whenever you need him, he is there. 
So the third miracle in John was the healing at the pool of Bethesda. So the, the kind of the background of that story is told. I'll, I'll just summarize it quickly. At, at this time, many people would lay beside this pool right around Jerusalem. It was their tradition and said that the angel periodically stirred the waters of the pool of Bethesda. And when that would happen, the first one into the water would get healed. And this is, many people who were sick and disabled were laying there by the pool day after day, waiting for their chance to be healed. And here we have a man who's been crippled for 38 years. He cannot himself get into the pool in time before someone else jumps in. Imagine this, decade after decade after decade, being there, repeatedly trying to get in the pool and yet failing. And then Jesus comes along, and in one command, Jesus reverses 38 years of pain and suffering. I mean, just the wow of that moment is spectacular. However, Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath, so it actually led to more murmurings of the religious Jews saying, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So what does this sign teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that God is the Lord of the Sabbath, and what better day to bring life than even on the Sabbath? And I think this miracle illustrates as well for us our own personal situations. We, too, are like this crippled man, laying hopeless and helpless in our sin without God. Like the man, we too have sat at the very edge of healing, trying to do things in our own efforts to get into the pool, yet we lay there unsuccessful, still caught in our sin. And in the same way, we can try to earn our way to right relationship with God, or we can trust Jesus for that. The fourth miracle is perhaps the best known of all the miracles and the only one seen in all four Gospels. We talked about it a couple weeks ago at our parking lot party. We learned that God, with God, 5 plus 2 equals 5,000 with 12 left over. Just do the math. That a handful of loaves and fishes can feed up a small college crowd with 12 baskets left over. Food out of nowhere. This is an act of creation. No wonder the people present were ready to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah right then and there. And what does this sign teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that God cares about our physical needs. But even more than that, he tells them later in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, there's more to life than physical needs. You can get all the food you need and all the other things you need, the entertainment you need to have, those hunger is met, but you never have enough. And Jesus is saying, you can come to me and I'll fill the emptiness inside, emptiness inside, the emptiness that can't be filled in any other way, and I'll fill it in a way that will last. Later on that day of multiplying the bread and fish, the fifth miraculous sign comes. We touched on this. We'll be quick about it. We've seen it made fun of by comedians and scoffed at, but we see Jesus walk for three and a half miles across choppy waters on the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's been some wild theories if you ever get out on the Internet and look for these. There's actually one professor in Florida who thinks that Jesus did this by drifting on patches of ice under his feet, you know, kind of like invisible floating skis to pull up alongside the disciples in their boat. The disciples were awed. In Matthew, we see Peter saying, hey, can I jump out and walk on the water with you? And Peter does, and when he sees the waves, he sinks in fear. And after he clears his lungs of the water from nearly drowning, Peter blurts out what everybody else and all the other disciples believe. Truly, you are the Son of God. And what does this sign teach us about Jesus? 
This Jesus who turned water into wine defies the density of water and walks on it, overcoming natural law. The sixth miraculous sign, as Jesus doing something that has never been done before. There's more to this miracle than meets the eye. We have a man who's been born blind from, blind from birth, and Jesus puts some mud on this man's eyes and tells him to go wash it, and afterward the man can see. No one had ever had their eyes opened who was born blind there was, there was where there had been no connection with the optic nerve and the, and the cortex, the visual cortex of the brain, but God made a way. And yet again, Jesus provoked controversy with the Pharisees because he did this on the Sabbath. And so we see the Pharisees searching out the blind man, questioning him about the healing. And the blind man didn't know who had healed him because he was blind when Jesus was with him. He never saw him. But the Pharisees said, whoever it is that healed you is a sinner because they did it on the Sabbath. And the blind man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. The Pharisees reviled him for those comments and threw him out. Afterward, Jesus meets this man who can now see and lets him know who he is. And the man becomes a believer and worships God. What does this sign teach us about Jesus and about faith? Well, first about faith, it teaches us that sometimes our questions, we can make things so complicated. And sometimes, honestly, it is just so simple. I can see. He must be God. He must be good. I don't know what your rules say, but he must be good. And this, we also see that Jesus is the one who can make the blind see both physically and spiritually because once this blind man could see, he could also see more accurately spiritually than religious leaders who had studied all of their lives what was going on in that moment. Sometimes it's just that simple. The seventh miracle is probably the most dramatic of all, raising of Lazarus from the dead. The text shows us that even though Jesus knew Lazarus was sick, he waited until Lazarus was dead and buried before he responded to the sisters' call for help that they'd sent by a messenger. Jesus could have restored Lazarus' life at any time. He could have walked across the water, traveled right through the walls, and been there with Lazarus before he breathed his last breath. But Jesus had already revealed his healing power and his power through similar things like that. It was now time for Jesus to reveal a whole other level of things, his resurrection power. Jesus chose to wait until the fourth day after Lazarus was dead. Now, the point, of, uh, the point at which, according to Jewish tradition, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't studied it deep enough, I don't know how they got this, but the Jewish tradition was that the soul finally leaves the vicinity of the body and drifts away after four days. So this guy is not just dead, he's really dead at that point. Jesus didn't just want to do the improbable, he wanted to do the impossible. So let's step back in the story where Martha tells Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I love what Martha goes on to say. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Even now, even now God will give you whatever you ask. I mean, Martha is still holding on to hope. Lazarus has been dead for four days. I love how she sees beyond the current circumstance and is willing to look a little crazy, a little out of touch with the reality to believe in God. I think I want that same touch of, of, of crazy in my own life. To be bolder, living that kind of faith in Jesus. 
So we know how the story ends. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But let's just stop for a moment and imagine this in real time to the best we can. John 11, it says, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. What if Lazarus didn't come out in that moment? This would have been a really bad moment. Not just embarrassing, it would have been cruel to Mary and Martha. Even though Jesus has done all these incredible miracles, you know, miracles are kind of like sports. You're only as good as your last one, right? Jesus has already proved himself, but then Jesus risks his whole reputation. He puts all of his miraculous collateral on the table for this moment. He's about to reveal a dimension of power that no one has ever seen before. He calls Lazarus, who is wrapped in about a hundred pounds of grave clothes, linens laced with spices and oils. He says, the dead man came out, the text says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. This mummy walks out. Some have said there's actually two miracles here. The fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the fact that Lazarus is actually able to get up and walk and all of that stuff. Jesus has said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine the party at that moment? Even the religious authorities acknowledge that this is a miracle. But they still didn't get it. What does this sign teach us about who Jesus is? First, Jesus is the king over death. And second, Lazarus being resurrected is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection. The fact that he has the power to do that is the greatest miracle of all. We remember the words Jesus previously told Martha, saying, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he asks the big question for all of us. Do you believe this? Third, by this miracle, Jesus is showing a foreshadowing of our own death. In our own sin, we were buried alive. And Jesus calls us out and saying, come out and surrender your life to God and I will give you life. Near the end of the gospel account of John, John 20, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, One's mind, once stretched by a new idea, never regains its original dimensions. I think that's what God wants to do for all of us today in this message. To have our minds stretched to see how each miracle speaks to unique truths about who God is, who Jesus is. To expand our heads and our hearts to believe in a God of the impossible, that there is nothing he cannot do. I've been contemplating these truths, and I, I, I want so much more to believe this wholeheartedly for me, for all of us. I want us to sit with these truths this week. But first, I'd like to ask you to identify one concern, one thing you'd like God to weigh in on. Maybe it's something with your health or your job or your family or our country. 
If you would, uh, whether you're here in the auditorium or whether you're at home on your couch or listening in your car, I want to invite you to do something different today. I want you to repeat some of these biblical truths that we hold to be true as they come on the screen. Let's just say them together as we close our service together. God, I believe you are all-knowing and all-present. Come on, say it with me even at home. God, I believe you can do immeasurably more than I would ever ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within me. God, I believe your thoughts and your ways are higher than my ways. God, I believe your love, mercy, and power is more than I could ever comprehend. God, I believe you can break the laws of nature that you created. God, I believe you are the God of miracles. You can turn water into wine, heal a blind man, and raise someone who's been dead for four days. God, you make a way when there is absolutely no other way. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you that you are the God who turns light into darkness, that you turn death into life, that you turn disease into health, that you turn confusion into clarity. Lord, that when we don't know what your will is in a situation, you want us to have that clarity more than we even want to have it. When we're in need financially, you want to meet our needs even more than we want. Lord, we welcome your Holy Spirit. And we open up our hearts and our minds to you today, asking would you lead each and every one of us into an awareness of you, our miracle-working God, being present with us. Holy Spirit, come. Come in this room. Come in living rooms all over. Come in dining rooms and kitchens, come into the bedroom where people are listening, come into the car where people are listening, Lord. Wherever we are, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just envelop us now. And that whatever we're facing, whether it's sickness, hardship, financial need, or a simple want that we're just so sad isn't happening, show us how much you love us and your power and your presence is with us. Lord, we trust you. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, Go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.